Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panim Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Tsarich Iyun podcast. My name is David Silverstein, and today I am joined by returning guest, Rosh Hashiva Vishiva Oraita, Rabbi Yitzhak Blau. Rabbi Blau, thank you so much for coming back on the Oraita podcast. It is exciting to be here for my uh, third time. So uh, um, the podcast took a slight break for Ben Azmanim, uh, but now we're back and uh, back and running. And uh, it's great to have Rablau on the podcast again. And the topic that I want to talk about today is a topic which is certainly relevant, especially given uh, the current uh, part of the calendar year. This is a time of year where the Jewish calendar is flooded with holidays that are focused heavily on the question of Jewish nationalism. Right? Obviously, this issue of the Jewish collective, the issue of Yom HaShoah coming up uh, tonight, Yom HaZikaron, Yom Yishalayim, Yom HaTzmud, etc., and I thought we would spend a little time talking about the state of religious Zionism. Obviously, we're in a unique situation right now where the religious Zionist party in Israel uh, is a very unique brand within the larger rubric of religious Zionism. And it also has a lot of political power in the context of the current government. But beyond the politics, obviously, there's a lot of deep ideological assumptions that are rooted in sort of what it means to be a religious Zionist. I think oftentimes when people think about religious Zionism, instinctively they think about the version associated with Rav Cook. Rav Cook obviously is a very critical and important uh, religious thinker, and he's perceived to be kind of the godfather intellectually of the religious Zionist world. And oftentimes when people think about religious Zionism in a contemporary sense, they think about it through his son, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook, Shiva Merkaz Harav, and all of its offshoots. But there actually are other visions of religious Zionism that existed already at the time of Rav Cook and exist currently, and I thought today, we would spend some time talking about sort of alternative visions of religious Zionism beyond what we'll call the sort of Rav Cook model. So maybe just to begin the podcast, if you could just provide some context. Obviously, when people think about alternative visions of religious Zionism, someone may think about, let's say, for example, Rav Rhinus. But I want to focus on two thinkers who are probably feel, you probably feel very connected to intellectually, and that is Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Lichtenstein. So Rav Soloveitchik obviously almost chose, you know, ran to be the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, but eventually his career was focused exclusively uh, in, in America. And his son-in-law, Rav Lichtenstein, eventually decides to move to Israel, right, and become the founder of now the famous Yeshiva Yeshivat Haritzion. If you had to map out in general, sort of like, how would you envision sort of their conception of what it means to be a religious Zionist? What, what would you say about that? Okay, so maybe I'll start by uh, saying I'm going to outline three non-Messianic models of religious Zionism. Meaning one possibility, as, as you're saying, is to think along Rav Cook's lines, that this is some kind of first steps towards the Messianic era, that we've returned to our homeland after these 2,000 years. And that's what we should be so excited about, right? The impending redemption. But just to mention three other models, I know you said you kind of downplayed Rav Reinus, but just to mention very briefly, Rav Reinus just thought, you know, Jews are suffering in Europe and they need a place to go. And that's certainly a legitimate value. Uh, in fact, I think some of our listeners will be shocked to hear that, but when the Uganda plan came up, uh, religious Zionists and Mizrahi actually voted in favor. And nowadays, to imagine like any religious Zionist rabbi voting in favor of Uganda over the land of Israel is inconceivable. 
But if you think along the lines of Rav Reines, the Jews just need a place that's not persecuting them. Okay, then when we move to Rav Soloveitchik, I think I'd focus here on his most famous Zionist essay, which is Koldo di Dofeik, which the Rav outlines uh, God knocking on the door, as it were, giving us an opportunity, which uh, here's a good example where the, the Rav assumes you'll get a reference and most people don't get it, right? Rebuta Halevi had already used the imagery in the same way. That, uh, that Bayit Sheni was an example of Koldo di Dofeik, which was often ignored. The beloved was knocking, but uh, was not, the knock was not answered. And the Rav is using that imagery today. And he famously talks about six knocks. Uh, I won't outline all six, but he finds a tremendous amount of significance in the state of Israel that's not about a messianic vision. Right? He talks about Jewish identity, how the average you know, secular Jew now confronts their Jewish identity in a much more profound way. Right? You can't avoid the state of Israel in the news. He talks about a theological plane that uh, you know, the Christian claim that they're the new Israel and the Jewish people are rejected has now become much more difficult theological claim to make. He talks about just the miracles of the, how the state was founded. There are all kinds of things that are getting the Rav excited religiously that are not about uh, Gula. So that's already another model. Then before I get to Rav Lichtenstein, I'll just mention that I think Rav Cook himself has other models. It is true Rav Cook will talk about, let's say, Gemar and Sanhedrin, about the flowers blooming as a sign of Gula. But Rav Cook will also talk about, in Orot, he has a passage about applying Jewish values to the totality of existence. That in the Gola, we won't talk about, you know, what's a Jewish economic system? Or even the current thing, you know, what, a, what should a Jewish uh, judicial system look like? Or how should balance of powers work? Right? Not so many rabbis in the 1200s wrote true about balance of powers in a government for the simple reason that we didn't have a government. And now we have to confront, you know, what should a Jewish prison system look like? How should Jewish uh, you know, social programs work on a governmental level? And that really is a, both a tremendous challenge and an opportunity. So here we have a kind of other model for Rav Kook Zionism that's not based on Gula. Uh, I'm not going to focus so much on Rav Lichtenstein at this point, but I, I would say I think Rav Lichtenstein connects to a lot of the things we said. I think in Rav Lichtenstein's Torah, you would get some of the uh, Rav Kook vision I just said, the ability to apply Torah to the totality of societal existence. And I think you'd get some of the other issues that the Rav talked about in the six knocks. I guess I'll leave this up to you, Rav David. At some point, I would like to mention how I think Rav Lichtenstein influenced religious Zionism. But for me, that's beyond the question we're asking right now. So maybe that'll wait for a next question. It's really interesting if you think about it. So, you know, the models you described, you even mentioned that internally within the world of Rav Kook, right? Rav Kook is a nuanced thinker, obviously, and there, he isn't sort of monolithic in any way in terms of articulating exactly what religious Zionism means for him. But there certainly is a strong sense that something is happening, right? That there's a messianic movement. So I'm curious in terms of thinking about sort of how the world of, say, Rav Soloveitchik conceives of sort of the messianic pull of the state of Israel. In other words, do you think that he thinks that, like, for the purposes of sort of thinking messianically, then the state of Israel is almost irrelevant, right? In a certain sense, it's no different than any other place. Or do you think just terminologically, he felt that you know, the focus on messianism right, is risky, right? In other words, do you think that his opposition to using the language that was utilized by other religious designers thinkers was fundamentally philosophical? And he thought that you know, this really isn't, or it's possibly not, or maybe likely not, the beginning of a redemptive process? Or do you think that you know, his issue is that you know, when you start, the second you start talking the language of messianism, Right, there certainly are significant risks, and obviously, you know, we've seen some of these risks unfortunately play out in the context of religious Zionist 
uh, doctrine and the way it plays out in real terms. I mean, people can imagine instances, let's say, for example, during the disengagement where people felt that, you know, because of, you know, what happened during the disengagement, so they felt like, oh, my God, it sort of totally undermined their sense of this can't be, right, the beginning of the redemption, because if it was, right, this wouldn't be happening. So I'm curious, you know, I always think about Rev Salvagic, obviously, you know, belief in messianism is a central tenet of what it means to be an observant Jew. So why do you think that Rev Salvagic sort of moved away from this language, right? What, what was his opposition primarily based on? It's a very good question. I'm a little bit reluctant, absent an explicit text of Rev Salvagic to attribute what I'm about to say to the Rev, but maybe I'll just outline a few possibilities, because I, I admit that I can't think, maybe I'm missing something, I can't think of a place where the Rev articulated why his vision was less messianic. Uh, I would say uh, two that break into three possibilities. One is maybe simply one is unconvinced that despite the amazing things that have happened, and there's no denying it's an amazing story, that uh, that doesn't mean that we're heading to the Messianic era, meaning one might say that in Bayit Shani, they did not envision that there was a possibility of Bayit Shlishi. Maybe there was a thought that, okay, once we're back, we're back for good, and eventually it'll lead to Mashiach, and lo and behold, we had another very, very long exile. So I, I know that people like to quote Rav Herzog that it can't be that there'll be another uh, galut, but with all due respect to Rav Herzog, I'm not sure what the basis of asserting that is. So that could be one. One's simply unsure that we're in the gula. The other you alluded to is that there are certain risks involved in messianic thinking, and I think that'll break into two. One is that messianic thinking can lead to kind of antinomian behavior, right? The sense that you could do things you wouldn't normally be allowed to do because the stakes are so high. Right, and I think we've seen that in Jewish history. People will talk about Shabtai Tzvi, that how did Shabtai Tzvi convince people to you know, engage in orgies or things like that? Well, the idea would be, well, if we're bringing the Messiah, then all of a sudden you'll do radical things he wouldn't have done otherwise because the payoff is so amazing. So as we know, Rav Soloveitchik, I think uh, one can definitely say that adherence to uh, halachic norms is a big part of his uh, philosophical existence. So maybe there was a certain fear that uh, it'll lead to uh, anti-halachic behavior. Uh, I think you also uh, correctly alluded to the other fear, which is, you know, unfulfilled messianism could be a emotional and psychological crisis. Okay, and that I think people do talk about how not only did the Shabtai Tzvi lead to anti-halachic behavior, but there was a certain sense of despair after an expected messiah did not come true. And I think you're right that I don't think we've seen it to that extent in contemporary religious Zionism, but that that fear is there as well, I think is reasonable. So again, I don't have a passage from the Rav, but I would say it's either A, he's unconvinced, or B, he's nervous either about the potential halakhic problem or the potential despair if things are not realized in a uh, quick and easy way. And how would you sort of think about the question of, you know, imagining in a Salvatic sort of world, right, the, the centrality of the Jewish people? I think one of the reasons why I think Rav Kook, or there are a lot of reasons for this, but I think one of the reasons why Rav Kook is so popular among Israeli discourse is because you get a sense that a lot of his language is focused on the Torah HaKlal, right? A sense that he really is interested in the Jewish people as sort of a, a large sort of entity in and of itself. Right? I think it's sort of not coincidental that Rav Salvechik's books are called Halachic Man, right? Lonely Man of Faith. Now, I know there have been some articles, I think Gerald Blissing has an article about this, about sort of the Jewish people and the thought of Rav Salvechik, but I think you've had to sort of evaluate some of the strengths and weaknesses of each of the models. Right? I think you could point to a larger trend right, in the thought of Rav Kook, which talks the language that there is sort of this entity called Knesset Yisrael, right? and much of his language is about sort of the power of the Ummah. 
So I'm curious if you think that Rav Salvechik, you know, what, what would sort of his vision be or sort of how did he articulate, right, what it meant to sort of think more broadly beyond the individual and sort of are there any contrasts between the way in which he thought about Jewish peoplehood and sort of the return to the land in a collective sense versus that of, let's say, thinkers associated with Rav Cook? Okay, that's a great question. That really could be its own podcast, but I'll try to do my best. Uh, maybe I'll just focus on two distinctions. Uh, one, there's no question that for Rob Soloveitchik, uh, dialectic and being caught by competing values is a big part of who he is. Okay, certainly Lonely Man of Faith is about that. There's no, uh, Adam 1 and Adam 2 don't have this grand reconciliation at the end, where for Rav Cook, uh, the ability to harmonize different viewpoints is much more profound. Uh, Review Valshulo is an interesting book where he tries to, ironically enough, combine the two. He says they're not so different. I think it's called Vahayulach Adim Biyadech, if I recall correctly. But even though I, I love Rav Shurlow, I was not particularly convinced by the book. I think there is a real split there between the Rav and Rav Cook. Uh, perhaps more germane to our conversation is what you're saying now, is that for Rav Salvechik, the individual is the essential category. And for Rav Cook, the collective is the essential category. But maybe I'll go one step further. Maybe there's really a third difference uh, in terms of how you think of the relationship between uh, particularism and universalism. And here, in many ways, Rav Cook is a remarkable thinker because Rav Cook is incredibly universalistic and yet incredibly particularistic at the same time. Meaning, Rav Cook, perhaps more than anybody else I could think of, talks about loving all of humanity, right? Loving every nation and trying to improve their welfare. That is a huge theme in Rav Cook. At the same time, Rav Cook has a very strong sense that Am Yisrael is, you know, essentially different than non-Jews. Right, not just we're different because of the result of certain historical choices we made, but that our DNA, as it were, is different. Now, I think Rav Soloveitchik also has a balance between universalism and particularism, but I think you wouldn't get kind of the more radical particularistic passages you get in Rav Cook. I don't think Rav Soloveitchik says anywhere that there's, you know, essential difference in hardware between a Jewish human being and a non-Jewish person. And it's also not an accident that even though Rav Cook was interested in broader philosophy, Rav Soloveitchik actually got a doctorate in the larger world of human wisdom. So I think that is a big difference. And to the degree that maybe sometimes there's an excessive particularism in the religious Zionist community, I think Rav Cook's thought could lead in that direction much more than Rav Soloveitchik. Again, I just want to reiterate, Rav Cook has tremendous universalistic themes also, but Rav Cook wrote a ton, and one could really choose to pick on the particularistic passages and at that point kind of ignore the universal message. Do you think in terms of, let's say, thinking broadly about sort of how each of these visions of religious Zionism has sort of created like their own like intellectual canon internally? I mean, think about, for example, compare and contrast sort of like what's going on within like the larger sort of non-Orthodox religious Zionist community in terms of the world of Jewish thought, right, compared to what's going on in Israel. I think it's fair to say that even though there's amazing, you know, Torah being taught in YU and the sort of the larger uh, centrist Orthodox uh, orbit, I do think that, you know, you do get the sense in the world of religious Zionism, at least primarily through the teachings of Rakuk and his students, right, that issues of Jewish thought in the broadest sense are very much part of the conversation. I mean, I'm curious in general if you think that, you know, Rav Soloveitchik, in terms of his religious Zionism, it was sort of a theoretical religious Zionism. It was religious Zionism that he himself would say, you know, he didn't live in Eretz Israel. And I think a lot of his writing is sort of grounded heavily, right, in the focus and the centrality of halakha. 
right? And I think it's not surprising, therefore, that when you think about sort of his students and sort of what his students are sort of like receiving from him as a teacher, it's oftentimes his lambda nude, right, and his sort of great commitment to sort of uh, halachic and Torah innovation. Right? When it comes to Rav Cook, if you just think about like how many books there are by religious Zionist thinkers um, about different topics of Jewish thought, it's actually pretty remarkable. I'm curious if you think there's something about Rav Cook Zionism, right? Is there something about Rav Cook Zionism that, in a certain sense, you know, doesn't have the same challenges that Rav, Rav Salvechik has in terms of you know the focus being you know heavily, heavily, uh, not necessarily in a negative way, but in terms of like in a sense of like what is being produced, you know, heavily on the world of Torah and Halacha, right? And it doesn't have the same focus, for example, on questions of Jewish thought. I mean, just imagine, for example, the books that are coming out of Israel versus the verses that are coming out of America, right? So I think you see a trend. I'm curious if you think it's like in a certain sense, part of the experience of Rav Cook as a thinker, sort of broaden the canon. Think about how many books he wrote, right? And by doing that, he sets the stage for theology, uh, particularly amongst the students. Uh, that's a great question. You know, d- doing these uh, podcasts with Rev David, it's like he, he's giving me softballs. I could just swing away. It's just amazing. Okay, so um, I think Rev David's really onto something here in that we've all benefited to some degree from the Rev Cook approach. And I'm even going to say maybe even those that are not really in the, you know, America's Rav Haramar world have benefited. And I think he's right. Obviously, Rev Slavichik was a huge Balmachshava. But to a great degree, the machshava and the halacha did not really uh, intertwine. And I would say Rav Luchenstein, the same thing, meaning they are deep thinkers. But when you were in Gemarashir, right, the only thing that happened was brisker lumdis. The Rav, one exception, I would say, is the Yardside Shirim. The Shirim Lezechai Bamari do integrate halacha and agadah. But if you're just in a Shiryomi, you know, uh, Migul Lahoti was Migul Lahoti. It wasn't going anywhere else. And I could definitely testify that Rav Luchenstein's shir was the same thing. Uh, whereas Rav Cook had a vision of, A, the yeshiva curriculum should be broader, okay, the yeshiva curriculum should have Agadah and Tanakh, etc., and that there should be more of an integration. He envisioned part of the return to Israel as a more integrated kind of learning, a more holistic kind of learning. And I'm just thinking out loud, it's really fascinating, like, I think you see that even people who were not, you know, in classic cooking yeshivot, let's say Rav Yuval Shurlau, who I mentioned before, and... Uh, Rav Reim HaKohen are Talmidim of Rav Luchenstein, who lived in Haaretzion. But I would say the, perhaps the, I don't know what you want to say, like the cooking atmosphere in the air affected them. And they are much more involved in the world of Machshava per se, and of integrating Machshava with Alaka. Uh, just to toss some other names out, uh, Rav Avram Stav right now is someone like that. Uh, Rav Shagaru unfortunately passed away as someone who wanted to integrate more and this shows, I think, the range of it. It's not only, it's actually an irony, which I'm thinking about right now, that if you're in, if you're actually in Merkaz or Haramor now, you're more likely that you're learning Gemara three star a day. And if you're in other yeshiva, which are less associated with Rav Cook, you're more likely to be doing Machshav and Tanakh as well. But I think that is part of Rav Cook's legacy. It's, in my mind, a very, very positive development. It's interesting, though, because if you look, for example, I know, for example, Rav Shirlo has a book called uh, Torah Eretz Yisrael B'Mishnat Rav Kook, where he tries to articulate sort of like what exactly was Rav Kook's vision intellectually, right, for the world of Torah on uh, the soil of Eretz Yisrael. But if you look, for example, at uh, there's an institute called, I think it's called Halacha Brura, right, which is an attempt to provide the commentary of Rav Kook on various Masechtot. And there, you know, you sort of open up the Gemara and imagine that you're going to have like this beautiful integration of halacha and uh, Agadah. And you assume it's going to sound a little bit in a certain sense, like you described earlier, of Rav uh, Salvechi's Yerzai Shirim, or maybe, you know, absent the academic Talmud, something like Rav Shagar. But it, it, it does read in a very, 
not dry in a negative sense, but it does read in a sort of very dry technical type of style that, you know, we don't have any sort of writings of Ruff Cook where he himself, I think, tried to really integrate the way you're describing. I mean, it could be that sort of his larger focus on Machshava and sort of his attempt to describe a more, you know, integrated curriculum created this climate. But I do think sometimes, like, you know, in terms of Ruff Cook's own learning in terms of uh, Gemara, right, at least the stuff that's published that I've read, so it, it can be a little frustrating sometimes. Like, you know, you expect it to be something else, and it seems to be, not in a negative sense, but it seems to be sort of standard uh, yeshivish learning. I'm not sure if, you, if you'd experienced any sort of moments in your own reading or learning where you felt like Rav Cook had really contributed something to a sugya conceptually, right, that really had this integrated model. No, that's a fair point, meaning Rav Cook's writing on Gemara. Of course, you have Einaya, but... And he has mostly a commentary on Haggadic sections. Every once in a while, he does comment on a halachic portion. But you're right. I guess sometimes people call for something, and uh, for whatever reason, they're busy, and they do other things. And I'm not sure that vision is really carried out in Rav Cook's writings. I mean, there is a collection called Tovroi, where they collected Rav Cook on Shas. But I have to admit, it's not one of the aspects of Rav Cook, which I have uh, delved into that much. But uh, I think we have it in other thinkers. You have it a little more. I think uh, if you learn Rav Tzadok, you'd have a, a stronger sense of what it might mean to integrate Halacha Vagada, even like the first sections of Tzidkat Tzadok, where he's trying to find meaning and all kinds of details in the first parak of Brachot. But uh, I'd concede. I'm not sure that Rav Cook actually ended up being able to carry this out. There actually is an irony just in terms of the sociology of contemporary Zionism as you're talking and thinking about this, is that you know, Rav Reim Cohen is from Otniel, they started publishing his Shirim on Shas. And there really is an attempt to integrate uh, halacha and agada in like a very intense way. And it's kind of ironic, right, as you mentioned before, because he himself is trained, right, in, classic, in the classic uh, British tradition at Gush, right, and the model that he's advocating is certainly not being studied in any meaningful way, right, at, let's say, the classic uh, Rav Kuki and Yeshivo, let's say, in Merkas Arab, right? So in a certain sense that, you know, what's happened in an ironic twist, right, is that some of the products of Yeshivat Haaretzion, which certainly are not committed in the intellectual abstract to Torah Eretz Yisrael, became very much proponent of this sort of learning in their own sort of sheer Klali model, whereas in the Yeshivot associated with Rav Kook, right, you actually find that the more traditional model tends to sort of dominate the discourse. So I'm curious, just sort of moving a second. Can I actually just use one example? Because sure. I just think that our listeners, our listeners will find this fascinating. Um, so let's say I'm t- giving sheer Klali on something with Shabbat. So I, there are all kinds of interesting Lumdish questions to ask. But Rav Ra'im is really adamant about the following point. So Professor Avam Heschel has a famous book called The Sabbath, where he says that Shabbat is about Kedushat Zman, and Heschel thinks that Kedushat Zman is more significant in our tradition than Kedushat Makom. So that is one theme in the book The Sabbath. And Rav Ra'im, if you look at his Sefer on, on Shabbat, he is adamant that the sense of Makom as a significant thing, and Kedushat Makom is also part of Shabbat. And he'll talk about Hotzah, he'll talk about Tchum, and it's, it's really quite fascinating. There's like a footnote where he gets upset with, you know, Professor Heschel. It's not true that Makom, sorry about the pun, that Makom has no place in the world of uh, Shabbat's thought. And I just think it's fascinating to me. Like, I can't imagine that this is being discussed in Haramar or in Merkaz, or I don't think Rav Luchazin ever thought in those terms. But here we have Rav, Shurla, Rav Raim saying, no, this interesting Machshava question. What, uh, what role does Makom and Kedushat Makom have in the world of Shabbat? 
Yeah, it's actually amazing because uh, you know there are all these stories about the way in which Rav Soloveitchik integrate, uh, sorry, interacted with that book of uh, Professor Heschel, and there's all these stories. I'm not sure if they're accurate. That you know, he said it's a beautiful book, but it has nothing to do with uh, Shabbat, right? In other <laughs> words, that uh, the, you know, Shabbat is Lamatet Malachot, right? And Heschel's book is nice, but doesn't sort of deal with halachic intricacy, and therefore, in a certain sense, it's not relevant, right? And you know, again, that may be polemical, but still, the idea is is that now here you have like his you know student, at least through Rav Lichtenstein, his grand student, right, who's now very much engaging. Heschel's thought and sort of trying to re-engage it through the lens of the halachic conversation. I'm sure. I'm curious if we could just transition for a second uh, beyond sort of like the different models of Rav Salvechik and, Rav, and uh, Rav Kook to think a little bit about Rav Lichtenstein and his impact on the religious Zionist scene. You know, I think that oftentimes people don't realize the extent to which Rav Lichtenstein coming to Israel and becoming an intellectual force within religious Zionism, right, was, was really significant because there really wasn't an alternative to the vision of religious Zionism in terms of mainstream sort of yeshiva circles, right, aside from, you know, Merkaz which was so dominant, right? So when Wilkinson comes to America, comes to Israel for the first time, right, so how would you sort of, you know, map out sort of like, what is his impact, at least immediately, in terms of trying to get a sense of like, where is religious Zionist discourse when he arrives in Israel, right? And in what way is he trying to shape it or to move it slightly differently from where it was when he arrived? The truth is, I actually think it's absolutely remarkable how much impact Rav Lichtenstein had, given that he's a foreigner coming to Israel, you know, when he's already older. Um, and let me mention a few factors. Uh, people might not realize this, but there was a time when the whole idea of army service was something that was viewed as a bidyevet. Okay, the first real yeshivat has there was yeshivat Karen Biyavna, had a very well-known rashiva named Rav Goldvicht. And Rav Goldvicht really was a product of Haredi yeshivot. And he basically said, all right, you know, the... The religious Zionists want to learn Torah, why shouldn't they be allowed to learn Torah? But in his mind, the ideal would be to be in Panovich, not to be in Karambiyavna and switching off between yeshiva and army service. And Rav Luchenstein came to Israel, and he articulated a vision of Hezder Lichachila. He wrote a famous essay called Zot Torah Hezder, which has also appeared in English. And he argued there that, uh, to quote him, that it's not that we love uh, Torah less, but we love Am Yisrael more, meaning there's a a real pull to become a Talmud Chacham and a real pull to guard Am Yisrael and do an act of chesed there. And at that point, uh, the ideal is to do both. So A, he created this sense of Hezder as an ideal, not as a B'dievid. Uh Secondly, it's very interesting. There's a, it used to be that a lot of discussion about justifying Hezder was based on Mohammed Mitzvah. And then we debate, do you need a Sanhedrin for Mohammed Mitzvah? And Rav Lichtenstein said something so simple. He said, what could be a bigger chesed than spending, you know, time on the Lebanese border protecting Am Yisrael? Like, even if it's not a Muhammad mitzvah, you should be involved in this endeavor, right? We, you know, we interrupt Talmud Torah for certain kinds of mitzvot, so this might be a mitzvah where that should be done. So uh, that was another chiddish of his. And also, I think, a much more uh, humanistic voice. Okay, uh, a moral voice, uh, a voice that's also concerned with the, you know, the pain of non-Jews. Okay, it's not an accident that Rav Lichtenstein and then subsequently Rav Mital as well were often the voices that would speak out, like when Sabra and Shatila occurred or things like that, that uh, often the more standard religious Zionist rabbinate would say it's, there's not really a problem here. And Rav Lichtenstein would speak up, or then when uh, prominent Rashiva, you know, gave a a uh, nice eulogy for Baruch Goldstein. So Lichtenstein wrote a letter complaining. So that was a very other important voice. And just to get back to what Rav David said, people don't realize that, I'll speak another point, which I think is fascinating sociologically. I'm curious what Rav David thinks about this. I think there are two yeshivot, for the most part of uh, religious Zionism, that created worldviews, created satellites. 
and the other very fine yeshiva, they didn't do that. Obviously, America Zarav did it, right? There are many yeshiva that are the Talmidim of America Zarav, and if we'll, I'll leave out the Haramor split for now. And Yeshiva Haratzion did that. If one thinks about it today, you know, the Yeshiva uh, in, in Tel Aviv of Rav Shurlau and Otniel of Rav Reim, right, they could be viewed as satellites or creations of Haratzion. Whereas, I hope no one will be insulted by this, you know, I think Mali Domingo is an amazing yeshiva. It has one of the best staffs out there. But we're like the satellites it produced. Like somehow, like Merkaz and Haratzion are the ones that created a worldview and created a, almost a community, as it were. So if you think about it, this tremendous impact, right? Re, you know, refreshing our view of Hezder as a lechatchila, more humanistic voice in the religious Zionist world, like creating uh, something that has a spillover effect to other institutions. It's really uh, shows you what the talent and greatness can do. You mentioned uh, the essay of Lichtenstein, Zot Torah Hezder, where he tries to provide like the intellectual foundation for Hezder lechatchila. And obviously, he was reacting to like the Haredi model, which assumed that you know Hezder was. At best, Bidyevit, and you know, really, you should study the Shivot Hakdoshot, the ones that don't integrate army study with uh, with um, with Torah learning. But I'm curious, sort of, on that point specifically. You know, first of all, there is sort of the mirror image of that argument, right? Which is, you know, I think now, oftentimes, the Shivot is struggling with the opposite problem, which is that, you know, the best students or some of the best students or some of the students who are really thinking more broadly about what it means to be part of a society are saying, how is it justified, as opposed to before we were saying, how is it justified to do army at all, right? Now people are thinking, how is it justified to do a shortened army service, right? In other words, why is it that in the Hezder model, it's not, for example, five years, two and a half years each, it's like three and a half years and then a year and a half, right? So it certainly is a heavier emphasis on Torah learning, right, as opposed to going in the army. Now, again, you can argue and say, well, you know, they do more miluim. Again, there are ways to sort of navigate this tension structurally, but I am curious in terms of thinking about like, you know, how this played out long term. In other words, if you had to articulate to somebody now who's associated with the worldview of Rav Lichtenstein, Rav Salvejic, let's say that sort of strand, that strand in religious Zionism. Right. So w- what would the argument be as to why it is that the assumption uh, is that religious Zionist soldiers should do less army service than secular soldiers? I remember actually I heard what Ruval Sherlow one time uh, making a really interesting point. He wanted to argue that Hezder is kind of like a lifestyle. And he was saying, like, he finds it strange that, you know, people assume that, you know, if you are in Hezder, you do less time in the army. But somehow, you know, the rest of your life, you never really take off specific, significant time to spend time studying. His claim was basically like when it's somebody else's time, like the army's time, you got to learn. But when it's your own time, like you're, you're working for a hedge fund, or you're working for, a, you know, Google. So there you're too busy to learn. And he was trying to argue that if Hester is really to be taken seriously, right, it has to be a life orientation where there's always a balance between the sort of aspirational element to be a Talmud Chacham and the more pragmatic needs to sort of like, you know, live your life and support your family. So I'm curious, like, why did Rav Lichtenstein think that the split should be, you know, some offshoot of, let's say, you know, three and a half years versus one and a half year? Or was it really just a decision made independently of him? He was making the more fundamental point about the value of both. Okay, so here's also an interesting uh, point you're making, which, again, touches on sociolo- sociology and hashkafa, that you're totally right. Like, if I was a yeshiva at Hezer student in 1972, I had explained to a more right-wing version why I'm not in yeshiva full-time. And I think the average yeshiva at Hezer student today who's struggling is struggling to explain why he's not doing full-time army, or at least three years, uh, two and eight years and eight months of army. That's quite a fascinating shift. I will mention a couple of things. Again... Even though Rav Lichtenstein does outline his vision, Zotar Hezder, 
I, I'm not sure he explicitly addresses your point, although I'll try to come to it in, a, in two minutes. But let me just say a couple of things that have happened. First of all, the existence of Mechinot means that it is more possible for someone to combine Torah learning with a full army uh, duration. Right? That's the idea of the Mechinot. You spend a year or two in the yeshiva, and then you do full army. I'll also say even the Hezder world that started to make a bit of an impact that, again, when you only do uh, the Hezder uh, amount, you're not able to do certain things. And you have to uh, kind of drop out, as it were, to do other things, which I think has become a growing pattern in the world of Hezder. Just to mention, like, you know, I make a little uh, parental bragging here. Like our oldest two sons were both in Shimon and Matayim, and by definition, they had to drop out of Hezder to engage in that, right? Because they had to give more time, and you couldn't do that within the Hezder framework. But I think, A, more people are choosing that option, and the Shiva Hezder are trying to range frameworks in the army where one can do those things and remain in Hezder. Again, it's still much more limited, but it has expanded to some degree. So I realize this is not an answer to your question. I'm just pointing out that I think there are more possibilities within the religious world to combine Torah learning with army service and yet do no less than uh, your secular counterparts. That's the first thing I'll say. Secondly, I'll say, again, this doesn't fully answer the question, but at the end of the day, even if you only did the Hezder amount, when there's a military conflict, you are equally trained and on the front lines just as much as your Chilni fellows. And at the end of the day, maybe that is the most important part of being in the army. Uh, one might know, unfortunately, that in some of the military conflicts Israel's had, uh, the casualties sometimes the Yeshiva Hezder students were overrepresented. I believe in the first Lebanon war, because a lot of Hezder units were in tanks, right? I think there they were overrepresenting the casualties. So at that point, maybe that's the ultimate question of. Uh, who's taking responsibility when there's a conflict, who's there? Okay, and there, the Yeshiva Hezder students are there. The last thing I'll say is, uh, again, I don't know if this is an answer, but in classic uh, Rav Lichtenstein nuanced fashion, in the essay, he also talks about some of the dangers and pitfalls of army life. That army life, uh, is I think it's one of the most important things one can do in Israel, but uh, it's hardly like a bastion of, you know, uh, spiritual and intellectual, uh, you know, uh, excitement. That's not what the average day is like. So I wonder if Lichtenstein thought that for the, you know, the benefit of Am Yisrael, we need to realize those other values also. And maybe at that point you could somehow justify less, fewer months in the army and promoting those other values. But again, he doesn't explicitly say that in the article, so I'm not sure what he would say. It's interesting, as you were talking, I just remembered that once sort of Moshe Lichtenstein make a really interesting observation. He said that, um, you know, when Lichtenstein writes this essay, so it's at a time period in the context of Israeli history where there are quite a few wars, right? And when people are serving during war times, as you mentioned before, you're more likely to lose your life. And therefore, a lot of Hezer soldiers, right, were unfortunately killed in battle. So there was a sense that, like, you know, soldiers, religious and secular, were giving up their lives in service of the state of Israel. And there really wasn't this sense of, like, wait a second, why am I doing more time or am I doing less time? The most important question was, will you, were you willing to self-sacrifice? And Moshe Lichtenstein said that over time, Israel's been engaged in a lot fewer wars, right? And therefore, when there's less wars involved, so less people, thankfully, are, are, are being killed— but the way you evaluate sort of the quality of the army service is not so much about whether you're willing to give up your life, but more about how much time did you serve, 
right? So therefore, in a contemporary climate where thankfully there are less wars than there have been in the past, so people think about, well, wait a second, it's not just that somebody else is serving three years, whereas I'm only serving, let's say, two years, right? Whereas in the context of Liechtenstein, so there, sort of the way in which it was evaluated was primarily based on, you know, how much are you willing to risk your own life, right? And I think, you know, if you use that model, that may explain just sort of structurally why he was bothered by it less versus nowadays, where I think the question really has been flipped. As you alluded to, you know, in the Shivot has there, this is sort of the question of the day, right, versus the question of, like, wait a second, why are we doing an army at all, right, versus, uh, you know, not, versus just being in yeshiva. Uh, I'm curious, just in terms of the last uh, few minutes or so, we could transition a little bit from Rav Lichtenstein as a thinker and more talk, think about sort of how Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amitel's sort of worldview played out on religious Zionism in terms of like their political orientation. You know, I have this vision. I remember I was young, it was the 90s. I had this vision of Ehud Barak going to Camp David. And I remember that, I don't know where I saw this, but I think Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amital, right, there was a picture of them like sort of like sending him off. Right? And the idea was is that he wanted to sort of demonstrate to the larger religious community that you know, he was being sent by people you know, from other communities besides his own. And Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amital were supportive of his venture. You know, Rav Amital obviously tried to find, he founded a political movement, Maimad, no longer exists. But the religious Zionism that we're experiencing today in 2023, right, politically, is very different than the religious Zionism of Rav Amital and Rav Lichtenstein. Um, and I think that it's fair to say that both of us are not particularly comfortable with the way things are currently panning out. But I'm curious to think about, you know, how do we get to this point, right? What happened to the more humanistic, modified, political religious Zionism of Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amital, right? And sort of how do we get to a point that we've moved away from, let's say, the old days of, you know, Yosef Borg and sort of all these, you know, greats of religious Zionism to a contemporary religious voice politically, which is, to put it mildly, not the most refined, right? So I'm curious if you think, in other words, what happened? To the voice of Rav Lichtenstein, what happened to the voice of Rav Amital in the context of contemporary religious discourse, political discourse? Well, every question here is like its own podcast, but uh, I'll do my best. Uh, let me mention a couple of factors. Okay, one is I think the religious Zionist community, when the state was founded, had a sense that they're kind of riding in the back of the bus, I meaning like secular Zionists had carried the day, which for the most part was true. Right? They're the ones who had done the bulk of the work in building a state. And religious Zionists were along for the ride. And when we got to, well, first I'd say 67 generated an incredible amount of excitement. Hard to imagine a more you know, uh, enthusiastic event than a six-day war, a tremendous victory, reclaiming the Kotel, reclaiming Gush Etzion, the Shomron. It was just an amazing victory. That created tremendous excitement. And then that was followed by the disappointment of 73. And I think at that point, there was a strong sense that maybe, like, as it were, secular Zionism had outlived its, uh, its central role, and now the baton had to be passed. So again, that baton passing could have gone in various ways, but I think it did lead to a certain uh, greater narrowness of focus, right? That the, 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 this, the, the euphoria of 67 followed by the disappointment of 73, I think, is part of the pattern here. Uh, secondly, I feel badly, but I'm going to put some of the responsibility in Rav Tzvi Yehuda, that uh, Rav Cook's son, of course, is a Rashiva of Merkaz Arav. And I think if I talked about Rav Cook as this great mixture of universalism and particularism, I think Rav Tzvi Yehuda emphasized certain themes to the exclusion of others. And you got a much narrower version of religious Zionism. I want to give great credit to Rav Yaakov Ariel, actually, okay, the Rav Rashi of Ramat Gan. 
Okay, he's the first person. Most people, most Talmudim of Ritzvihuda say that I'm totally wrong, that Ritzvihuda is just, you know, exactly like his father, Hashkafakli, which I don't know how you could read his farm and think so. But be that as may, Ryakarel was very forthright about it. And he once said that there's a difference between, they're not the same, but there's a big difference between a dream, idealistic vision, and pragmatic reality. That the older of Cook never had addressed a real state, right? He dies in 36, I believe, okay, before there's a state of Israel. And Ritzvah had to deal with, you know, an actual state with real political decisions to be made. And at that point, maybe this kind of idealistic vision where you're always combining various themes has to be jettisoned. So I have to give Yaakov Ariel a lot of credit because here he's firmly in that world. And he's admitting that there is a difference between Rav Tzvi Yehuda and, uh, and the older of Cook, but he's trying to justify it. So I think those are some of the factors that have played out. And I guess just a third factor, look, unfortunately, if there's going to be an ongoing conflict with the Arab world and there's going to be some legitimate disappointment, let's say, in how certain Western countries talk about Israel, so and all that's legitimate. Like, it's legitimate to be frustrated with, A, Arab intransigence, and B, Israel being treated to a different moral standard. I think there's reason to be angry about that. But does the anger about that then lead to like an ongoing negativity about all of the non-Jewish world? Or does one understand that life's complicated, that uh, one could fault various aspects of the non-Jewish world and still realize that, uh, you know, there are good things there, too, and there are decent people there, and one has to be worried about their human dignity. And sometimes uh, it's hard for people to maintain both those things. Maybe we could just sort of end with an interesting sort of offshoot of this question, not so much on the political realm, but more on the educational realm. There was an article last week, uh, I think it was on one of the websites, I think Srugim, where a woman from Kibbutz Dati was complaining that she felt like all the educators um, in her children's orbit uh, were associated with a vision of religious Zionism, which is you know, known colloquially as uh, Khardali, right? Haredi Lumi. And for the purpose of simplicity, let's say it's associated with the worldview of Rav Kook and Rav Tzvi Yehuda. And she felt like you know, there was a dissonance because she's part of the Kibbutz Dati, which is sort of on the most liberal end of religious Zionism. And she felt like starting in a, you know, in Ghan and going all the way through uh, you know, 12th grade, she felt like most of the religious role models uh, that her kids were being exposed to were not, you know, in any way, they, weren't, they were wonderful people and they were people who really you know, committed to education and they were really excellent educators. But ideologically, right, they were certainly you know, not um, sort of speaking the same language that she was speaking on the issues that were you know, divisive, at least internally within religious Zionism. So I know in America, this is a similar challenge, right? When people think about educators and educational models, so there's always this question of like, who are the educators? Do the educators, you know, sort of reflect the visions of the community? I'm curious, you know, sort of of coming back full circle, thinking about Rav Cook and Rav Salvechik, right? What is it, right? What is it about the model of, let's say, Rav Cook, Rav Tzihuda Cook, that world, right, that has been undeniably successful, right, at creating a whole cadre of educators? Meaning you can say whatever you want about that world philosophically, you know, intellectually, etc. But it's hard to deny the fact that when you look around the Ramim in, in the high schools and you look at the early childhood educators, right, they're often coming from yeshivot that are associated with sort of the Rav Cook view of religious Zionism, and less so the Rav Salvechik and Rav Lichtenstein. Maybe just as a last question, right, sort of reflecting on that specific point, do you think there's something positive? I always like to end on a positive note. Do you think something positive, right, about Rav Cook's vision in an inspirational sense that may be motivating people to think about these careers that we think are, you know, avodas kodesh, they really are holy work? And what could we, you know, as people who are not necessarily fully, you know, firmly, you know, um, you know, uh, focused on that world, what can we take from it in terms of trying to sort of bring some of that into our own community? 
Okay, so I'm going to end on a positive note, but also with a challenge. I hope the challenge does not undermine the positivity. Uh, I think you're totally onto something, and there's definitely an American parallel, which is in the American world, you might say, oh, we want our kids to have modern Orthodox educators, but if modern Orthodox kids are encouraged not to go into education, right, either directly or for financial reasons, right, and they're all going to be, you know, doctors and lawyers, actually, now I can't say that anymore, I should say, they're all going to be like investment bankers and hedge fund managers, right, so at that point, they're not going to be in Chinuch, and then you're going to have Haredi teachers, that's who you're going to have, and I believe the same thing is true in Israel as well, right, if the, you know, the more liberal version of the Dati Lumi world is, again, going into other professions, and the more Kardali world is more encouraged to go into education. And let's give them a little credit. Maybe they're not only more encouraged to give into education, that they're willing to live with less. They're willing to live with maybe, uh, I can think of some people uh, I know in that world who maybe they don't have a car, right? Most of us can't imagine living without a car. But, uh, you know, you could live in Israel without a car. It's not a terrible lifestyle. I think you could, uh, and that's only one example, right? Maybe they want to live with a house that's not as big as the, what most of us uh, demand. So at that point, I think it's really a challenge to us, right? It's not an accident that our kids are going to have Kardali teachers if people from our world don't get education. So let's say the positive part of this is to admire their idealism and their willingness to do with less. That's the positive part. And the challenge is, you know, uh, we need people from our world to go into Jewish education. I'll just end by sort of adding one caveat there, which I think, you know, sort of brings us back to the beginning of, this, of our conversation today, which is I think that in order for sort of non-Khardali religious Zionism to really be able to sort of deal with these issues, right, they have to be able to revive, at least to some degree, the language of Messianism. How you revive that, what a sort of like more Rav Lichtenstein, Rav Salvechik Messianism looks like versus that of Rav Cook, that I'll leave to minds much greater than mine. But I think that part of the feel and part of the pull, part of the excitement of Rav Cook is a sense that something is happening, right? That you're part of something really big. Right? I think part of the beauty of the language of Messianism, again, admittedly it has its risks, is that it does make you feel like you're moving towards something. And I think when that's part of your educational language, it inspires people to want to be part of the project. Now, again, I can construct a different model and say, well, you know, I want to use sort of a messianic model that talks about, for example, the possibility of being part of this larger thing called building Israel and being part of, let's say, a, a society which is rooted in Jewish values. Fair. But the point is, is that the language of Jewish messianism, in some degree, I think, is something that, you know, certain communities in Israel have been really effective at using in a positive way to generate passion and enthusiasm. And unfortunately, the alternative, the alternative model is to sort of downgrade almost entirely the, the language of messianism. If you think about it, it's kind of ironic, right? Because I would say like 98% of shuls in Israel say the phrase reshitz michat gluteno as part of their davening. And I would argue even more than that. Like, I don't think Rav Salvechik said it. I don't know if Rav Luchsenstein said it. But if you were to skip that in most religious Zionist shuls, even among religious Zionist people who are not, you know, part of the Merkaz Rav world, they would think you're nuts, right? They would think you're like Haredi. Right. So in a certain sense, like we all do believe to some degree that Messianism is part of our experience, but certain communities are more vocal at articulating what that means. Other communities are thinking about it, you know, more in the abstract, not really sort of using it right, in any way to sort of inspire uh, more passion, and more commitment. Probably want to yeah, if I could just respond to that. It's a very interesting idea. I just feel like you could talk about the state of Israel in like reverential terms without having to use the word Mashiach. Like if someone asked me to talk about Israel, I would say, this is the incredible human story. You should love this story, even if you're not Jewish. Right? A people was in exile for almost 2,000 years. 
Right. And when Herzl went around talking about the state of Israel, when people thought it was ridiculous, they were right. Herzl was wrong. What a crazy idea. Like, how are we going to bring Jews from all over the world and make a state and make a sovereign state again? And we did it. And we revived the language. It wasn't a completely dead language, but we brought Hebrew back, which wasn't obvious either. Like, we could have... Uh, we could have gone with German, we could have gone with Yiddish, and we brought Hebrew back. And then think about the difficulties we faced. We had to integrate Jews from all over the world. We had to face hostile neighbors from all over the place. Okay, even if you one thing that people don't think about, we, in the first three years of the state, the state doubled in size. 600,000 Jews took in another 600,000 Jews. Can you imagine any other country doing that and succeeding? And granted, the 1950s was a difficult economic time, but people didn't starve. So uh, I hope I'm communicating this. Like, in my mind, this is like the greatest story ever. Like, how could, how could, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll be tough now. How can you stay in Queens at a moment like this? Right? Come be part of the story. So this is, uh, I think you could generate tremendous excitement without necessarily the messianic uh, tone. Yeah, I mean, I, we, could, we could definitely uh, agree, agree, disagree about this, because I would argue that that's ex the language you're describing through when it's sort of translated in Jewish terms is exactly the language of messianism. Meaning, I think what you're describing, and I, I really do appreciate your passion in terms of sort of telling that story, right? In other words, one of, you know, the, the, the 13 principles of faith. Again, I know there's a lot of debate about, you know, how these principles sort of articulated. And trust me, I know for all the, you know, Mark Shapiro fans out there, I, I'm familiar with the book. But the idea basically is that, you know, messianism, there's a sense even in the Gemara that when you die, God says to you, see, Pitali Yeshua, that there's an aspirational element to the story and that when you tell the story with an aspirational goal, then you get a sense that, you know what? The story has been incredible up until now, but there's a lot more to do, right? And when you feel a sense that there's a lot more to do, it inspires people to sort of move to the next stage, right? In fact, I was talking to my daughter the other day, and she's, she's a culminary in B'nai Akiva, and she was struggling because in one of the meetings they had for B'nai Akiva, so one of the speakers just said sort of like, you know, Derek Agav, he said, and all of you, when you get older, you're going to live either in a settlement or in a Garin Torani in a city, and she was annoyed because she said, wait a second, like, you know, what if I would just want to live in a regular city? Like, why do you have to live in a settlement or live in a Garin Tarni? A Garin Tarni is basically an attempt to sort of like provide uh, secular Jews more uh, observant access in the context of city life. And I was explaining to her that like, even if you don't agree, what he's basically trying to say is that if you have an aspirational sense of doing something, you always have to be doing, right? And the way he thinks about doing is, living in settlements, right, being a part of a Garing Tarni. And even if you reject that application, right, the idea is, is that there's always more to do, right, and you always want to be doing something. So I think that the language of messianism in our tradition of Tzipitel Yeshua right, is exactly what you were describing, but as opposed to putting the goalpost, and now we're here, it's starting to say, and there's so much more to do, right, and that in many ways is what we're trying to accomplish here, sort of move the story to the next phase. But anyway, um, it's been a great conversation. Rabbi, thank you so much again for, for joining. Um, I wish everybody, uh, both uh, in Israel and the diaspora, a Chag Ha'atzma'ut uh, Sameach. I think this episode will come out right around Chag Ha'atzma'ut. And uh, feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, and observations. And uh, again, Rabbi, thank you very much. Really my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, the podcast of Yeshivat Oraita. <laughs>